Being an independent, self-sustained hero works great on television, but what about the day-to-day Christian life? Hi, this is Him We Proclaim with Dr. John Fonville. Sometimes it feels like we're up against the whole world and our own selfish desires, and we drop the ball constantly. To top it off, there's this underlying social pressure within Christianity that you need to pull your own weight or sanctify yourself. Sound eerily familiar? Well, if you can relate to that, you'll appreciate the message today. It's from our Gospel Mystery of Sanctification series, and today's message is called, The Christian Life is Not a Solo Effort. Here's part one. Just by way of introduction, let me just review for you what the goal of Walter Marshall, Walter Marshall was the uh, 17th century Scottish pastor who wrote this book, or he preached a series of messages, 14 messages, that was later turned into a book called The, the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification. But listen to the goal of his messages that he preached, which became the book, the goal of the book. He says, the goal of the book was to teach you how you can live out the way of life that the Bible calls holiness, to teach you how you can live out the way that the Bible calls a life of holiness, righteousness, godliness, obedience, and true religion. This is what God requires of you in his moral law which he has summarized in the Ten Commandments, and particularly in the two great commandments of love to God and love to your neighbor. God has called us and requires of us. It's not an option. It's not a suggestion. We are called to love God and to love our neighbor, to keep his moral law. But what I want you to learn and what Marshall wanted his people to learn is this, is that to live out this way of holiness and obedience He wants you to live it out, and I want you to learn to live it out in a way that is pleasant and joyful, not oppressive and exasperated. Um, At the end of his first chapter, this is what he said to his congregation. He says, my prayer is that God will bless my effort to show you God's powerful way of holiness. I want to keep you and others from killing yourselves through failed attempts at holiness. How many of you feel like that? right? You have tried, and you have tried, and you have tried, and you feel like you're killing yourself at these failed attempts at holiness. And he says, this is my desire for you to keep you from killing yourself. He says, I hope that through my work, God will enlarge your heart to run in the way of his commandments with great cheerfulness, joy, and thanksgiving. And so how often do you feel like your Christian life is two steps forward and three steps back, right? Uh, How many of you have ever thought this? You know, I was doing so good, and what happened, right? You're just doing great, and all of a sudden you're thinking, golly, what just happened? If you've ever thought this, you're in good company because the Apostle Paul thought this all the time. Um, In Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 15, listen to what he says. Now, he is a justified believer who is in union with Christ. He is being sanctified. He has died with Christ. He has been buried with Christ. He has been raised with Christ. He's not condemned. All of these great, wonderful truths of the gospel, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6 of the book of Romans. And then he comes to Romans chapter 7, and he says, despite all of this, he says, I was doing good. What happened? 
So listen to his confession. He says in verse 15, he says, for what I am doing, I do not understand, for I am not practicing what I would like to do. How many of you can raise your hand to that? He says, but I am doing the very thing I hate. That's the apostle Paul, right? He says, listen, verse 19, he says, for the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil I will not to do, that I practice. He says, I find in the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good, for I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. I love God's law with all my heart. I love it. I delight in it. I want to live it out. The problem is, is I just can't do it perfectly now. Right? He says, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? I feel like that all the time. That, that is the normal Christian life. That is the confession of a justified believer who is in union with Christ. And so the question this morning that I want to pursue with you is this, is that why is our pursuit of obedience, why is our pursuit of holiness, why is the gospel way of holiness so hard to learn? Why is it so hard? Well, I'm going to give you two reasons. I'm going to give you two reasons why the gospel way of holiness, the gospel way of obedience is so hard to learn. Here's the first reason. The reason the gospel way of obedience is so hard to learn is because the gospel way of obedience is far above the way you and I naturally think. Listen to that carefully. The gospel way of obedience is far above the way you and I naturally think. So the scriptures uh, tell us two things about living an obedient life. Two things. First, the scriptures tell us what God wants us to do. That's called the law. And the scriptures, second, tell us how we can actually do it. That is the gospel. Now, let me ask you a question. Which of these two ways, law or gospel, is easier for you to understand and learn? Is it not the law? You see, we naturally think as law keepers because this is how God created us. If you go back to the book of Genesis, you'll see that Adam was created under the law. He was created under a covenant of works. He was not created under grace. There was no grace before the fall of man. Adam didn't need grace before the fall. Grace is for sinners. It is not for the sinless, and Adam was sinless. God created Adam and he created man with the ability to succeed. He fashioned Adam and Eve in true righteousness and holiness, Paul says in chapter, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 24. Sin was not yet in the picture in the garden prior to the fall. And so the Lord made Adam righteous. And he was naturally inclined to obedience. 
obedience to God's law was his delight. It was his first inclination. It was his natural demeanor. It was his natural way of thinking and relating to God. The Heidelberg Catechism, it says this, that God made man so that he could perform his law. You see, Adam was perfectly and perpetually able to obey God's law for the reward of everlasting life. God pronounced all of his creation very good. There was no defect. There was no propensity in creation that inclined man's heart to sin. God is not responsible for that. And so by virtue of our creation is why the law is natural to us. As human beings, we are wired for law. This is what Michael Horton says about this in his book, Christless Christianity. He says, we come into this world ready for action. The only difference since the fall is that we've gone AWOL, using all of these gifts of our creation against the creator and making a mess of things. He says, we need the cross, but we think we just need to find our way back to the glory road to resume our upward march. He's exactly right. You see, the law is a doctrine whose seed is written in our hearts, written by nature in our hearts. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, verse 15, it's called the conscience. You can't get away from it. The law is written by nature into our hearts. In contrast, the gospel is a doctrine which is not at all in us by nature, but is revealed from heaven, and it totally surpasses natural knowledge. The gospel is not something that you can sit down like Chinese, because sometimes, you know, they say, well, you know, the gospel is so foreign to us, it's like learning Chinese. No, it's, it's harder than that. It's impossible. Because you can sit down and with a lot of diligent hard work, you can learn Chinese eventually, right? You can't sit down and just learn the gospel naturally. Listen to what Jesus says about this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, when he asks his disciples, he says to them, who do you say that I am? And listen to what Peter replied. He says, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered him and said, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father has revealed this to you who is in heaven. The gospel is something that must be revealed to us. It is not in us by nature. So unlike the law, the the grace of God, the gospel is not natural to us. The covenant of grace comes onto the stage of human history as a stranger after Adam's sin in Genesis 3, verse 15. When Adam and Eve are hiding in fear and shame and guilt in the garden, knowing that they have broken the covenant of works, knowing what God has said the penalty would be, death, And God comes to them and says, Adam, where are you? Where are you in relationship to me now that you've broken my covenant? How do you stand before me, completely exposing your guilt to Adam? The Lord's announcement of good news in Genesis 3.15 to Adam was foreign to him. 
and it's foreign to us. The Lord's promise to send the serpent crusher in Genesis 3.15 was an unexpected word. It was an unexpected word to Adam, and it is a word that Adam was not wired to grasp and that we are not wired to grasp. It is foreign to us. We don't expect to hear that. What was Adam's correct expectation to hear? Adam, where are you? I'm in my sin. I've broken your covenant. Adam, you're going to die now. That is natural to us. It is not natural to us for God to say, despite breaking that, Adam, I am going to save you. You see, in our fallen state, the gospel is absolutely incomprehensible apart from the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, this is what the Apostle Paul writes. He says, a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot, listen, he cannot understand them. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. What is a natural man? A natural man is simply this. It is a person who is functioning bodily but is, without, but is not indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God. It is a person who is not regenerated and indwelled by the Holy Spirit. That is a natural man versus a spiritual man who is indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And because of this, listen, the gospel of grace is this strange announcement that seems foolish and powerless to the unbelieving world. Listen to what Paul says, how unbelievers view the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. He says, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, through his wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Do you see that Paul says not only the message is foolish, but the method of preaching is considered foolish. And God takes the foolish message and the foolish method, and he's pleased to save people like that. He says, for indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And so again, listen to Michael Horton again as he comments on this passage from his book, Christless Christianity. He says, works-based religion and philosophy, that which the Greeks consider wisdom, It's there to help us with our inner soul and practical questions about daily living. All of this talk about the incarnation, life, crucifixion, and resurrection of a Jewish rabbi, it seems beside the point when you you do not really think of yourself as a sinner under the wrath of God. And so to the unbelieving world, the gospel is not only strange, it's just complete foolishness. 
But listen, not only is the gospel impossible for the unbelieving world to understand, but the gospel remains strange even to believers in this life. This is why the Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, after he goes through all the blessings of the gospel in chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, the the whole paragraph in the Greek, an uninterrupted sentence from verses 3 to 14, he rehearses the gospel. Then he comes to verse 15, and from verses 15 to verses 23, he prays a prayer asking God the Father to enlighten the eyes of believers so that they can know what is the hope to which they've just been called of what he's just said about the gospel in verses 3 to 14. Paul says, you as believers cannot even know this unless God continues to enlighten your eyes. And so the gospel remains even strange to our ears throughout our life. Michael Horton, again, he's so helpful. He says, to the extent that we remain pilgrims in this life, the gospel remains strange even to us. Until the day we die, we will struggle to believe the bad news and good news that God announces to us. We just do not naturally think that we are born in sin, that we are spiritually dead, helpless, and unable to lift a finger to save ourselves or impress a holy God. He says, as a result, it does not just occur to us that our greatest need is to be redeemed, justified, regenerated, sanctified, and glorified by God's saving work in his son by his spirit. See, this is our problem. Too often we want to default back to thinking of obedience to God's law like Adam prior to the fall. It's the Nike slogan, just do it. Tell me what to do, uh, just do it. Americans, we're we're get-or-done people, right? Pull yourself up by your bootstraps, and we're going to get her done. You see, we still think we're like Adam prior to the fall where God created Adam and Eve so that they could perform what God required of them in his law. But you see, Adam, the scriptures clearly teach that through the prompting of the devil by willful disobedience robbed himself and all of his descendants, that is you and me, of this power to obey God's law now. And consequently, what has happened is that this gospel way of obeying God's law post-fall is very different. It is very far above the way you and I naturally think. Let let me give you an illustration from church history about this. Um, How many of you have heard of St. Augustine, right? How many of you have heard of the heretic Pelagius, right? Pelagianism, the the most condemned heresy in the church is Pelagianism, right? I believe it was four councils, uh, it may have been more, but at least four church councils condemned Pelagianism. I mean, it it is the most condemned heresy in the church, so... Uh, Back in the 4th and 5th century, Augustine was confronted by this British monk named Pelagius. And Pelagius confronted Augustine because he was very offended by something that Augustine had written. He had written in his confessions a prayer, and here was the prayer. Give what you command and command what you will. Pelagius was offended by this, and he thought it was an outrageous thing to say, give what you command and command what you will. 
because Pelagius was convinced that only Adam had originally fallen and nobody else. Pelagius did not believe that all men were sinners in Adam. Listen, and that all men were robbed of the power to obey what God required in his law. So in other words, Pelagius denied the doctrine of original sin. What is the doctrine of original sin? It is the total corruption of the human race. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 51 that David prays. And so original sin is the fallen condition in which we are born. But for Pelagius, we only become sinners when we actually sin. And so for Pelagius to pray, give what you command, implies to him that we cannot of ourselves do what God commands. And so you see, Pelagianism is the natural way of thinking. It's to go back prior to the fall and insert yourself back into creation before there was a fall. It's to think like Adam before the fall. Pelagius wanted to be like Adam pre-fall and mistakenly believe, and he taught that men could perform what God required in his law because he said, if God would require of us something that we cannot perform, God is not righteous. That is the natural way of thinking. And it is the way of thinking that we can be tempted to fall back into ourselves because the gospel way of obedience is so far above the way that we naturally think. New covenant obedience is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It is not the product of our own efforts to just get it done. In Jeremiah chapter 31, where Jeremiah prophesies of the new covenant, he not only includes the forgiveness of our sins, but he also includes a, a total restoration that begins with regeneration and a new obedience that is offered. And so the gospel way of obedience is the way in which the dead are brought to life to live for God. Heartfelt trust and obedience has always been God's intention from the very beginning. How did God create man? This is, what, this is so important to understand. Reformed confession of the Christian faith doesn't begin with the sin of man and, and man fallen in his sinful state. It begins with the goodness of God's creation. God created us in his image as his own people to reflect his glory, to rule over the rest of creation faithfully until this whole earth would be filled with the glory of his name. And so God, listen, in creation, we were created strong, not weak. We were, we were created faithful, not unfaithful. We were created righteous, not wicked. We were created God-centered, not self-centered. But then the fall, because of man's willful rebellion, the fall created this break, this fissure, this departure. And Adam, through the prompting of the devil, by his own willful obedience, he robbed himself and he robbed all of his descendants, that is you and me, of the power to perform what God required in his law. And here's the good news. The good news is that God, out of his love and mercy, would not stop until he completely restored his image in us. 
And so through the gospel, the Holy Spirit brings us to life, making us a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a what? New creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, the new things have come. Through the preaching of the gospel, the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts and he unites us to Christ. And Paul says, listen, who Christ has become for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. Christ has become to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And so in the announcement of the gospel, there's a twofold message of good news. There is the forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake. There is justification, just as if I have never sinned and just as if I've always obeyed perfectly. But then there's up more good news. There's not just the forgiveness of my sins and the, the imputation of Christ's righteousness, but because Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection are reckoned to us, the Holy Spirit is now working in us that obedience which God's law could never accomplish. And that's good news. Thanks, John. That's a message called The Christian Life is Not a Solo Effort, Part 1. More messages from the Gospel Mystery of Sanctification series coming up next time. The mission of Him We Proclaim is to bring you the gospel of good news each weekday. And it's our prayer that your heart will be filled with joy and a clear understanding of the gospel and God's word. If you want to hear a past broadcast, check out our podcast in iTunes or download our app. Just search for Dr. John Fonville in iTunes or Google Play. Him We Proclaim is a broadcast of Dr. John Fonville. If you would like to visit Pastor John's church in Jacksonville, Florida, you're always welcome. You can find out more at ParamountChurch.com. Thanks for listening and join us next time 